Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm about to ask you a really stupid question, but here we go. How does the offer of free beer sound? Sounds like the greatest offer on earth. And as a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that free beer. Thanks to my friends at beer52.com, you can taste eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to the website, beer52.com forward slash party. That's B-W-E-R, the number five, the number two, dot com forward slash party and cover just £4.95 for the postage. On top of that... Political party listeners get an extra two free beers, so that's a total of ten free beers. That is a crate of beer. Beer 52 travels the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries the earth has to offer. And each month, they send you a different theme. Themes have included Germany. I mean, that one would have been amazing. Korea, Norway, South Africa, California, Finland, and even more but they haven't forgotten their roots. They're a UK company and they're passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in. You can leave at any time and your first box is sent to you next day. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case includes award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which takes you through the different themes of the UK craft beer scene, and you get a snack thrown in just to top it all off. And you can pick the sort of beers you want. If you don't like dark beers, you can pick the light beers. Just go to beer52.com forward slash party to get your first crate of eight beers free. And don't forget political party customers, because you're very special people. Get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's beer52.com forward slash party. I mean, that would be a great night in, wouldn't it? Hello and welcome to the political party. I hope you're well. I hope your loved ones are well. I hope you're washing your hands regularly for the requisite amount of time and that you're following the government advice, particularly if you're in those vulnerable groups. And for the latest government advice, you can go to the government website, gov.uk. That's gov.uk. We are living, obviously, in a very strange time where it's not just about um, the isolation. It's not just about the fear of having the virus and the effects of it on ourselves or on our loved ones. You don't want to give it to anyone. The tedium of being at home, often alone for large amounts of time, and the not knowing how long this is going to last. And of course, the potential for this to not just be a public health crisis, for it, but an economic one as well, is why today's guest is so perfect. It's Torsten Bellin, he's the chief executive of the Resolution Foundation. They're a think tank uh, focused on improving the living standards of those people on low to middle incomes. So they've they've sprung into life around this crisis and already released a paper called Doing What It Takes. I've put the link in the show notes so that you can read uh, that excellent paper that... Um, they've put out there and that they're lobbying the government with. And it's really about 
preventing a recession and how you do it and what the role of the state can be. And they've got some radical suggestions that I talked to him about. He's brilliant, not just on the economic stuff and not just in his role as Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation. In 2008, he was a member of the Council of Economic Advisors at the Treasury during the financial crash. So he's seen from the inside what it's like when a government has to deal with a big economic shock and the decisions you have to take and the purpose of those decisions. And this conversation, no spoilers because he's superb and there's a lot of great detail in here, particularly around what the Resolution Foundation, and not just them actually, uh, earlier, um, well, by the time you listen to this, yesterday, people like the former Business Secretary Greg Clark saying that the initial $330 billion offer from Rishi Sunak is not enough um, for businesses and for workers. And it sounds like, having listened to Boris Johnson's press conference on Thursday evening, there may be more announcements. However, in the meantime, this is what Torsten and the Resolution Foundation and many other people are calling for, um, which is a lot more help for businesses and a lot more help for workers, including some pretty radical policies. So enjoy this. Um, it's a great conversation with a highly intellectual individual uh, and indeed uh, very timely. So I shall leave you in the hands of Torsten Bell. Delighted to be joined by Torsten Bell, uh, Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation, who's just published a paper called Doing What It Takes about the economic response uh, to this crisis. Torsten, what is the nature of the economic crisis we're facing as a result of this? Well, I think that is really important to understand. The, what is happening in terms of the economic shock we face is not, as people may have thought about it two weeks, three weeks ago, which is that a large number of people become sick and for two weeks aren't able to work and that affects their firms. That is not the problem. That is at least a relatively small part of the problem we face. Instead, what is happening is that the economic shock is being driven actually by our response to trying to limit the spread of the virus. So the social distancing measures mean that people aren't going into shops, they're not going into restaurants and cafes. Five million people work in those sectors directly affected by the social distancing measures and that is causing a sharp drop in revenue, sharp falls in the work that people have to do. So it's things like that and then closing schools, workers having to be at home. These are huge economic uh, uh, shocks to sectors, to families' incomes and that is what is going to drive the bulk of the economic problems we face in the months ahead. Uh, the, the report you've got out doing what it takes makes fascinating reading. One of the great points that you make uh, in there is that working from home is not a luxury that most low-paid pe low people have. It, it, it's something, it's a luxury that people higher up the income scale can afford to do. Yeah, there are very, very large differences in how this crisis is going to affect different people. First of all, the sectors that have already been hit, the ones I'm mentioning, hospitality, retail, uh, are significantly lower earning sectors, over £100 a week below the national average um, are people in those sectors and if you look at who can work from home which is how you can protect your income maybe while your kids i'm not saying it's fun to be at home while your kids are <laughs> and working when your kids are there but it's definitely possible to try and protect your income work around it but if you look at who can work from home less than 10 percent of people in the bottom half of earners say they can work from home and it's almost five times that when we get to the very highest earners so this is a very very steep gradient of how this crisis is affecting different people and remember that is not it's not always like that if we go back to the financial crisis actually everyone got hit quite a lot and the richest actually lost most in the immediate fire of the crisis this is very different and it's much more serious as a result it's also changing rapidly i mean depending on what other measures in terms of social distancing and self-isolation the government announces 
I mean, how bad does this have the potential to be? So I think the key thing to understand about why the risks, the economic risks are so big from this crisis is that for understandable reasons, based on the government's uh, response to the health crisis, they are locking down, they are engaging in social distancing, they are closing schools. Those things are necessary. They have big short-term economic effects. But the really dangerous thing is that we can't tell people what the end game is. So firms and families facing income falls don't know either how long those income falls will last or if they haven't been affected yet, whether it will affect them in future. And the problem of that from a macroeconomic perspective, from a whole economy perspective, is that they cut back their spending more than they would if it was just their income falling today. And that is what could make this crisis really bad. And, And it's getting at that offering people support if their incomes are falling right now, but reassuring people that they will not face catastrophic income falls if this goes on for some time. That is what avoids hardship today, but also stops the demand shock, the big cutbacks in spending that make this recession deeper than it needs to be. The Chancellor announced £300 billion, pounds, um, in term, including loans for struggling firms and things like that. He's also said he'll do whatever it takes. That seems to suggest that even he knows that doesn't go far enough. In your view, how much effect will that £330 billion have? Well, the government is right to offer loans to businesses. The Bank of England is also helping make that happen by making sure that um, banks have both their balance sheets are set up to let them uh, lend and giving them cheap lending, giving them cheap money to lend out. So that is the right thing to do. That helps for some firms, stops a temporary shock becoming a permanent hit to that firm, i.e. stopping them going bust. But the problem we have is... A system of loans like that makes much more sense if you think you face a very short, sharp shock. If you think, right, I'm, I'm not going to be able to make any money this month, but next month I will. Then a loan that stops me going bust yeah. is exactly the right thing to do. If what you face is uncertainty that this goes on for several months, and crucially you don't know how long, then firms are going to be much, much more reluctant to take out loans. And the problem is not what the cost of the loan is. So we're talking 0% loans in lots of these cases. Anyway, that is not the problem. The problem is that if I'm a small business, I cannot take a loan that covers 6% of my wage bill and my rent costs because if I take a loan that big, I will never be able to pay it back. And it's not about the interest, it's just too much money. And that is where we are today. And that is why the government needs to switch away from a focus on loans, important though they are, to providing direct um, reductions in wage bills for struggling firms and then support for workers. And doing that together is what we should be uh, prioritising. And we think that is doable, and it's doable with concrete measures based on the system we have, because nobody should be offering advice to government about inventing entire new schemes in the middle of a crisis. That is not how these things work, and it is not how we help people right now. So just on the loans, it's a potential for them to be counterproductive, that either, well, if people do take them out, they could find themselves after this crisis in in a longer-term hardship. Um, well, in the reality, you know, you're going, you'd be expecting to see a reasonably high default rate on these kind of loans. That doesn't mean they're the wrong thing to do. It just means that that's, you're trying your best to keep as many firms as you can afloat through it. So I don't think it makes things worse. It's, just, it's more that as the nature of the crisis has changed, loans are a smaller part of the answer. And instead, we need to get direct to reducing the bills of struggling firms, not just giving them money to pay those bills. Uh, 
your three demands at the moment are to boost sick pay, maintain workers' attachment to firms in the face of reduced demand, and strengthen the social security safety net. So let's just start on the first point of boosting sick pay. You want to extend statutory sick pay to the 2 million employees who earn less than £118 a week and increase it from £98.85 to £160 a week. In terms of who would benefit from that, what sorts of people are we talking about? So at the moment, lots of higher paid workers obviously get paid significantly more than statutory sick pay. Our firms offer us more generous packages, just like they do for maternity pay. If you work from, So those people are basically already covered. They get either all or most of their pay during two weeks off sick. For lower pay, for, for workers who are kind of in the middle, so above £118 a week, but not working for professional firms and others, they rely on statutory sick pay. That is enough to make sure, that's £95 a week, that's enough to make sure people aren't in severe hardship. Um, and importantly, the actual sickness phase of this is two weeks. So the economic damage is not as severe during this phase, but we obviously want to help people avoid big hardship. And the, the, as you say, the two million low earners, people earning below £118 a week, who are either working shorter hours or on very low paid hourly rates, they're the people that are currently excluded from the system and they need to be brought in. Uh, the government has actually consulted on doing that last year. So this is a, this is the easy part of the package. Okay, This is just making sure we're doing the minimum to make sure people are not going without money when they're needing to self-isolate with specifically with the disease. But as times have changed, you know, this was an important, this was like a central part of what needed doing two weeks ago. We are now in a much more um, uh, worrying economic situation. And so the other parts of the package are where the bold and the radical action is. If I'm honest, just getting on and sorting the sick pay problem should have been done before and he's doing today. Uh, let's talk about those bolder elements then. A new statutory retention pay scheme. Um, so uh, this is for people who don't have to work uh, people who don't have to work to stay formally employed by their firm. So, uh, so how would this work? So the way to think about this is there are lots of firms up and down this country who have suddenly seen their revenues dry up. They can't sell things or um, they can't get the supplies they need to produce things and that's meaning that their revenues have gone through the floor. If we do nothing, that means that they will either they will go bust and then their workers are unemployed or they will stop themselves going bust by just making sure they lay off all their workers. Anyone on a zero hours contract will be on zero hours immediately and we'll see a big rise in unemployment happening and that is what we are trying to avoid because we don't want those firms going bust and we don't want those workers ending up unemployed so what we need to do is to make is to say to those firms we will reduce your wage bills and say to those workers we will protect your family incomes not that this will be completely pain-free but that we're going to make sure you don't face catastrophic losses and the way to do that is to make sure those workers keep even when there is not enough work for them at their firm so they're stopping working, but they are still getting paid and they're getting paid a good percentage of their earnings. We suggest two thirds. Other people will have different uh, views so that they can get by through this tough phase. They will get paid through their firms, but the firm will not be footing that bill. The government will be providing that money just like we do for statutory maternity pay today. So when you're on maternity leave, um, the, your firm continues to pay you that statutory maternity pay, but they claim it back from the government. And the reason that is important is because it means we have an existing system that can make sure that we can actually do this rather than coming up with a grand plan that's completely not based on what we know actually works. When you talk about the importance of existing systems, is that because it's literally about the software and things like that? 
Yeah, or is it about the mindset? Uh, no, it's principally about the actual literal physical um, <laughs> IT and payroll and accountancy systems to make sure. The thing, the thing in all crises is to think, to get a clear-eyed view of what the nature of the problem is you face and then to be really realistic about what tools are actually at your disposal and yeah. give the best match-up between those two that you can in the time that you need to. And if you look at this crisis, even compared to the financial crisis uh, 10 years ago, um, the speed of it is actually much quicker because the speed of the economic shock is being driven by the need to act quickly in response to the medical shock. Um, it is happening very fast. It is not like a kind of, remember Northern Rock went bust, then a year later, other stuff started happening. Yes. That is not what is happening today. We're going week by week. So you need to act now to put a line under the risk of firms going bust and workers' incomes being hit. So the SRP, the, the statutory retention pay would be, the mechanism would be firms paying their employees, their existing employees. Who are not working. Who are not working. X percent of their... Yep. Um, At least £150 pounds a week and then two-thirds of their earnings if that's more than that. And then they would then claim that back from the government. And they would claim it back from the government. And actually, in statutory maternity pay, we have an ability for the company to ask the government for the money before up front. So we can actually try to even ease the pay, the um, cash flow pressures on the firms. But firms, you know, firms, if, if firms can borrow money to pay those kind of bills... Uh, but they know they're going to get the money back from the government straight away. That's when we're getting a system that can actually work. Those are the kind of loans firms want. What they don't want is a loan they can't see any way of paying back. Well, this is really radical stuff. I, to a lot of people, it would sound entirely sensible and exactly the role of the state in a crisis. When you have a Conservative government, how likely do you think they are to, to adopt these sort of measures? Uh, I think I'm confident for, confident for a number of reasons. One, the Chancellor has said he'll do whatever it takes, and he has explicitly recognised that their approach to date has not done enough on household incomes and on wage bills. So that's the first thing to say. Um, the second thing to say is the nature of this crisis and its speed is going to shock a lot of people into doing things that they didn't think they would ever do. That is the nature of all economic crises. Ideology, what you thought you were in politics for, <laughs> all goes out the window. Dealing with this is what you are in politics for. So I'm confident on that basis uh, too. And I also think if you look, yes, this is radical in terms of a British policy response, but it is not that radical if we take a broader view, particularly of how European governments are responding to this uh, crisis. The, the thing we're saying here is take ideas that uh, are taking place in other countries, but make sure that we can do them within the existing UK institution arrangements we have, because that's how we get help to people fast. Uh, your third uh, aim is to strengthen the social safety net, um, so benefits really. Yeah. Um, is this just about universal credit? No, this definitely isn't just about universal credit. So the thing to say is we want this statute, we want the statutory retention pay to make sure as many workers as possible keep being paid by their firms and can go back to work as soon as this crisis recedes. But even if that is done immediately and is successful as we would like, unemployment is going to rise, partly because there are 5 million self-employed people like yourself. Yeah. Lots of those people, uh, their business is going to dry up and they won't be, they don't have an employer that's statutory um, retention pay, except possibly in some parts of the transport sector where there are people who are self-employed who look a lot like employees. But apart from those, you know who you are, Uber, Deliveroo. But apart from those people, self-employed people are going to become unemployed in the weeks ahead, but we're also going to have firms just going bust. Before they get anywhere near implementing our statutory retention pay, firms are just going to go under. And that means unemployment is going to rise. So the safety net is going to be needed more than ever. That safety net has different, has different elements for it for different people depending on how they're coming into the system, what they've done before. The most important thing is to get the basic rate of that safety net up. So it's currently around £73 
a week that needs increasing immediately to 100 pounds for everybody so that we reduce severe hardship and the most normal argument against increases like that is that it discourages work and there's other problems with it yes even if that was true in some normal times that is absolute nonsense today the problem is not it's not the safety net that's discouraging work it's the virus it's spread and the measures to stop it so we can forget the normal anxieties about that and it's also just worth saying on this we're not starting in a good place so we have been slowly eroding the base core not all parts but the core part of our safety net the out of work benefits over the course of the of recent times particularly the last few years when they've been frozen even when inflation has been going up so if you look at the value of those benefits that 73 pounds i'm talking about that is now lower in real terms than these benefits were um, in the early 1990s Okay, that is a time when our economy has grown by 50%. So all else equal, it should be significantly higher and it's exactly the same. That is not a safety net fit for purpose. It can be increased swiftly. The uprating of benefits will be taking place anyway at the beginning of April. So we need to do that immediately. There are then broader cases. There's lots of other bits of the benefit system that need to be looked at. So I'll give you an example. So as keen watchers of the social security system will know we have two systems running at the moment we have universal credit the new government system that brings lots of benefits together and we have the old tax credit system so new claimants are going into universal credit but old claimants people who are in work uh, but claiming some benefits are on the tax credit system most of them at the moment when hours fall in a crisis we need the social security system to help people by cushioning that blow so their pay goes down slightly but they don't lose their job so that, and their benefit payments should go up to compensate. Universal credit actually is better suited to doing that. But the problem is most people are not on universal credit yet. They're going to be stuck on tax credits. And unless they fall out of work, they will probably stay on tax credits for the foreseeable future. And, at the, and unfortunately, due to decisions taken in 2012, uh, tax credits are currently mu- doing a much worse job at cushioning that blow. So they don't respond quick enough if people's hours and their pay falls. The government needs to reverse that immediately. We need to resource Job Centre Plus because the business that they are engaged in has just flipped from being, you know, holding people's hands, long conversations about how to apply for work for people that they see every week. That is not what happens in a crisis. What happens in a crisis is that uh, Job Centre Plus needs to process lots of claims to make sure people get benefits as they come out of work swiftly. And that needs to happen immediately. The government has set aside money for public services. You'll remember the £5 million set out in the budget that's mainly for the health service that's obviously the right priority but we need DDP to have access to those extra ca- that extra money we need people in job centers fast processing claims and making sure people are getting the support that's really crucial to stopping the individual hardship for those families yes but also bigger bigger recession because people have not got money to spend all these measures are about stopping the hardship and making sure that people don't lose their their homes that they're not evicted that they can and stopping afford- firms going bust crucially and, and stopping, stopping firms going bust um, how much is it also about keeping people spending? So th- th- that is the macro problem we face, is that if you're a per- human, like all of us hopefully are, <laughs> and you think that your wages either have fallen or could fall in the months ahead, you will cut back. Mm. Uh, and if you are a firm and you think your revenues they either have dried up or they might dry up in the, year, in the months ahead, you're definitely not investing. You stop spending and unfortunately you start firing people. So it's the, it's the fear as well as the actual hit that people are facing that is so dangerous and is so toxic. And what we are trying to... These proposals are not just about alleviating the hardship today. They're about saying to people, you do not need to worry about the very worst outcomes happening anymore. So I can't tell you when this crisis will end, but I can tell you it will not be 
awful for you so you don't need to totally strip back your spending today I know it's so hard to predict because none of us know how long this period is going to last or, or, or the true economic implications of it but do you think and I realise it's a really difficult question that once this crisis is over the economy kind of zaps back into life or do you think it's going to be a slower recovery or does that depend on how long the crisis lasts I mean let's just step back so in terms of so I mean I think we Sometimes we talk too flippantly about recessions. Recessions are really bad. Yes. I mean, the average recession in Britain is a 4% reduction in GDP. That's not really about, you know, who cares about GDP per se. We care about the income that families matter. But that's two and a half grand per household. It's a lot of money. Okay? Yeah. And this is not an average recession. It's not an average recession because it's happening so quickly and so deeply. And it's not an average recession because it is globally synchronized. And that, those are bad recessions. So that's the bad news. The good news is that, yes, the bounce back should be quicker than during the financial crisis. Because a lot, some of what is happening is economic activity being deferred. Okay. That'll be the case for some kind, some uh, service providers. Events that don't take place today can take place in the autumn. So yeah. there should be a measure of bounce back. But we won't see all of that economic ground uh, made up. People are not going to go and have the meals they would have had out. You know, they might have more, slightly more meals, but the lost activity is going to be very real. And this is going to be a very significant hit to people's incomes. So, the, um, so it is not the lasting damage that you expect out of a financial crisis, but it is very, very serious. Um, and until we get out of the need for the lockdown, we can't even start to get that recovery. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now save 50 percent on the sleep number limited edition smart bed for a limited time for jd power 2023 award information visit jdpower.com awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com when you see the effects of the 2008 financial crash uh, and the political decisions that followed it, including austerity, and you look at the political problems that that caused, what are your fears? That, and I know we're sort of, we, we still don't know exactly how this is going to unfold, but managing the recovery of this is, is as important as managing the crisis. Do you worry that we're then plunged into another period of, even if the government does adopt these stimulus measures that you suggest, they then have to claw that money back after the crisis? the spending cuts, they, they get us through this period, but then you go through another round of austerity and you see the populism and all the other things that we've had. Um, so that's a very big uh, question. Let's just focus on, the, let's just focus on the, uh, what happens to the government's finances. So the government, the gov- the government is even in just a week ago, setting out its budget, was broadly telling us we've got the borrowing under control uh, and in fact, actually, we now think we can get away with borrowing more. So even just two years ago, they were aiming to borrow zero billion pounds a year. The budget last week said they were basically targeting borrowing 60 billion pounds a year. 
um, the, what is happening now, and that as a kind of steady state, mainly to pay for capital um, expenditure, that's the levelling up infrastructure you've heard so much about. What is happening here um, is that the, what, the, the level of borrowing is about to go through the roof, partly because the economy will get smaller, uh, um, but also because tax revenues will stop coming in and we'll spend a lot more money. There. So borrowing will go up a lot. Debt will rise. In recessions, on average, debt rises by about 10% of GDP. It is un- I think it's unimaginable that it's as small as that in this crisis because the state is going to be providing a balance sheet under a lot of these broader problems, plus the cost of the health response itself. So I think that is the bare minimum we're going to be seeing uh, debt rising by. Now, what comes after, as you say, is very hard to see. Uh, we are totally focused on what needs doing right now. But I think the things, the components that you'll want to think about within that are the government has broadly and politics has broadly moved into a world of accepting that we can maintain a higher level of debt stock and that's what's going to happen. We're going to ratchet up our debt from currently just under 80 to somewhere nearer 100%, hopefully not too much higher, of GDP after this crisis. I think people are probably likely to accept that that increase has happened and not try to kind of do drastic things to remove it. And I'm judging that by the fact that all politicians are basically no austerity fatigue is there. There's no political appetite for them saying we've got to get this back down again. And there definitely won't be after this crisis. I think that isn't going to be the problem. The problem is going to be that the government's approach that they've been hoping to follow is borrow for lots of capital expenditure, increase current spending, day-to-day spending on the NHS and some other public services. You see 10,000 police officers. Uh, that's, their, that's what they were hoping to do without having to do big increases in taxation to pay for it. Mm. That is not going to be the world we find ourselves in. And so really the government is going to be choosing once we come out of this mess about if they really want to be the people that are a big change from the last 10 years, not carrying on with the same old, same old, then the kind of they were just, just on the tightrope of not having to raise taxes significantly to slightly increase current spending. That tightrope had just been completely uh, snapped. And so they're going to have to decide not today, but they're either going to be a tax rising government or they're going to be a continuation of austerity. That is the choice that is going to face this government. Because And well, there is a deeper lesson here, which is that Sometimes people come into politics with a big idea about what they're actually trying to achieve and they get to actually do that. By sometimes, I mean 1% of occasions. <laughs> politics is really about how well suited are you to the problems that actually turn up at the time that you are actually privileged enough to govern the country. And that is what determines the politician that you are. So Boris Johnson might have thought he's a politician uh, that delivers Brexit and then spends lots of money in easy times and talks about uh, levelling up in the north of England a lot. Most of that, I'm afraid, is out the window. What he is now is the coronavirus prime minister who is responsible, and it's a heavy responsibility, and no one should take lightly the fact that the level of responsibility placed on him and other ministers, but that is what will determine his time as prime minister. That is the job he faces, not anything else he thought it might uh, be. And then the fallout from that, how that is managed, that is what Boris Johnson as prime minister is now all about. You talk about having debt of potentially around 100% of GDP. That makes some people that so good, That would be a good case. And that, but that alone makes people really anxious. There's, a, there's, a, there's an anxiety about the national debt. Do you think that anxiety is misplaced? Um, I think you know, the public is right to want politicians that care about how their money's spent, that care about the cost of future generations paying for debt that we, we build up today. So people thinking about it is important and politicians should also care about it. People that don't care about the public finances shouldn't be in government. But but now is not the time to worry about 
specifically about the increase in debt that happens to respond to this crisis. We've got to deal with the crisis. We've got to stop it being a deeper recession than it otherwise would. And we need to do that, one, because it will avoid severe hardship that we cannot understate for some families, in particular because this is a crisis hitting low-income families the hardest. People, the, the sectors most affected by what is happening right now have people working in them that are 25% more likely to have no savings than the rest of the country. Okay, This is really serious. So we're doing the right thing to deal with the social hardship. We also need to do the right thing. That does mean borrowing because that is how we stop the crisis being deeper than it needs to be. So it's both right at the micro human level and it's right at the macro level. And then later we need to think seriously about where that leaves us and where it leaves our public finances. But that is not today's uh, challenge. That, that, that is easy for me to say in the United Kingdom. I'd say in some other countries, this is going to be much harder to deal with. So Italy is about to face very serious challenges about how it funds the huge costs on top of its existing public finance challenges and that in the end is going to become a problem for the whole eurozone they need an answer quickly to how italy can pay its debts and you're also going to see some other countries facing very significant problems you do not want to be iceland for example that running into the financial crisis had just built itself up as a big banking sector and has then spent the last 10 years reorientating to be a tourism economy just in time for the coronavirus to come along and destroy the world's tourism industry. So there are countries around the world that are going to be facing very significant difficulties. We need to be part of the answer to those global problems as well as dealing with our own public finance issues. Just on government debt, imagining this crisis isn't happening, is a high level of government debt necessarily a bad thing? And that all, that all depends on what you've what you've bought with the money um, and what your financing situation is to pay for it. So while interest rates are as low as they are, you would clearly you know it's, it would be very odd to think that um, a level of the, the the same level of debt is the optimal level today as it was fifteen years ago because interest rates are now zero percent and they were five percent before the financial crisis. So that you know the cost that government has to pay for its borrowing has gone through the floor. So that means the level of debt you can have to give you a certain level of debt repayments, interest payments, has gone up significantly. So that should make you more relaxed about the level of debt. What we should also, and, and really what is going on in the government's change in approach, i.e. being happy with debt not falling anymore, is that they are taking the view uh, that that is going to stay the case, that interest rates are not going to go back up, that debt they can maintain permanently a higher level of debt. Now, is that true permanently? I have no idea because I have no crystal ball. And anyone telling me, it, you know, when we were in the Treasury back in the 2000s, that interest rates would be permanently below 1% or feel like that, I would have thought they were mad. So I definitely haven't got a crystal ball. I was wrong then and I've been wrong about lots of other things since. My basic view is that governments should plan for systems that allow them to borrow now when we need to. But then when they're planning in normal times t that are strong enough that if the world changes, be that that they need to borrow more for something else or that interest rates go up in a way that we don't expect in future, that we have time to adjust to that without needing to do things that are incredibly uh, risky. So that is, what, that is what risk management for a government looks like. But we definitely should not be as worried about a certain level of debt. You know, before the financial crisis, it was 40% we were all aiming for. We've been living with 80% for the last few years. And we're about to be living with 100, 100 plus once this coronavirus uh, shock has passed through the system. So we've clearly already changed our view, i.e. doubled how much debt we are collectively, it looks like, being comfortable with. But can that be 200, 300% of GDP without some serious other risks being borne? No. So we should take it seriously, but we should recognise the world has changed. You were inside the Treasury at the time of the 2008 financial crash. 
And that really, to most people's minds, is the last time that we had a, a national, well, international crisis that required governments to change the way they thought, to, to intervene in a way perhaps they hadn't been prepared to. How, I mean, just take us inside what that was like to be at a senior level at a time like that. How quickly did people appreciate the magnitude of what was happening? Um, well, you should, you should talk to Gordon Brown and Arthur Darling for that. <laughs> I have spoken to the people, Darling, I'm the people Gordon that were Gordon. actually senior during that um, uh, phase. I think the, the, the things to think about are that there were more canaries in the coal mine in some ways in the financial crisis. So remember, um, I can remember in the summer of 2007, uh, lots of people in the Treasury said so Gordon Brown had just gone into number 10, Alistair had arrived at the, at the Treasury. I was a civil servant at this point. And lots of people thought that a lot of the big economic decisions had kind of been taken. The big increase in spending had happened. Um, and we were in a different phase now. Gordon, you'll remember at this time, was talking about lots of constitutional reforms. The economic agenda was slightly on the back burner. Um, and then in September of that year, Northern Rock started, kicked off, as it were. Q's first bank run in you know, a century for, for Britain. But then we did have phases of relative calm. We had to nationalise it in the um, early part of the following year, 2008. But we, but then the really deep part of the global financial crisis didn't start till October 2008, so over a year after Northern Rock. Now, did that mean... I'm not saying that we then knew how bad what was coming. We didn't really know how bad the autumn of 2008 was going to be until we got into the autumn of 2008. But we had put in place... Legis- we'd learned how to nationalise a bank. Yeah. That's what Northern Rock had done for us by that phase. The... Um, and we'd had some time to think about what the degree of, you know, the good chance of a recession coming was kind of established. We'd had time to think about what the monetary and fiscal response should be. Now, that did not mean that things did not move very fast. And in particular, in two areas, you can see that. Uh, you see that in the core issue, which is trying to get a grip of, is the problem facing this banking sector in the crisis that's emerging? This is in, this is in the middle of um, the autumn of 2008. Is it a, a liquidity problem? These banks can't borrow because the markets are frozen up? Or is it a solvency problem, i.e. their balance sheets are sh- shot? They've lost too much money, they can't carry on, they need to be recapitalised. I think the big decision that Britain took before other countries is to recognise we've got a capital problem here, not a liquidity problem. And to say, we're going to, um, we're going to shore up these banks' balance sheets, and if that means nationalising part of them, that is what we will do. And the reason that matters, going back to what I was saying before, is you've got to get to the core of the crisis. And in the financial yes. crisis, the core problem was banks that were, where they, some lots weren't solvent, but people were worried about, people didn't know which ones were and which ones weren't. That matters because in that world, banks won't lend to anybody. And it matters because no one will lend to banks if there's a chance they're insolvent. And then everybody starts cutting back because they can see this problem and they have no way of grasping it. So the state's job in those circumstances is to put a line under that and say, we will make sure these banks are solvent. We will recapitalise them. You, you don't need to, you do not worry, you need to worry about the existential part of the financial crisis anymore. We can get on with dealing with the, the human and the business part uh, of it. So taking that decision, which is where Gordon and Alistair got there quicker than the rest of the world, did have to happen at speed. The, um, uh, and then the second thing where things happened fast is once you've cut interest rates to, to near zero, turns out we're now going even nearer zero, but at the time what we thought was as close to zero as we could... Um, get the introduction of quantitative easing which had been a kind of for most not for the whole world but for most macroeconomists was a theoretical idea mm-hmm. i.e. it's what you do in a situation that our textbook show can happen uh, had to very quickly become an operationalizable policy and in retrospect 
there was not a lot of public debate and policy advice to draw on. And that is why crises are hard for government. They're taking decisions about new problems that have emerged that often a book doesn't exist to tell you the answer to. And if it does, you haven't read it because it was written in 1955 or something. Okay, So on both recapitalization and on the move towards quantitative easing, um, those were new answers to new problems that had emerged. And that is what you do see in all crises. And the test of leadership in a crisis is that politicians cannot be expected to be the experts in whatever has just happened, be it coronavirus or be it banks going bust. What they have to be is clear-sighted about what the problem is and then totally ruthless about making sure that they cauterize, they seal off the core cause of the crisis that is going on as swiftly and as comprehensively as possible, and then they can get on with the normal business of driving a recovery. With quantitative easing, and I know that this crisis is different to to that one, but uh, in this crisis you're... Uh, advocates and basically giving money effectively directly to people. Do you think in the wake of the financial crash that would have been a better option or, or another option uh, as well as quantitative easing would have been to give state money directly to the public? Well, it's definitely not um, either or. And if you look back at the financial crisis increase in some uh, benefits that happened in the middle of it, that was definitely what was done. The thing that is different here is that firms and workers can see very swiftly the threat to their livelihoods okay they work in retail they work hospitality those places are going bust right now and they don't know when it will end and so that is why the urgency of drawing a line under how bad the hit could get for those firms and families right now is so much more important than it was where whereas in the financial crisis the core thing was to reassure everyone that these banks weren't going bust they'd be able to get their money the banks would be able to lend again at some point to businesses that wanted to uh, spend some money so it's a different nature of the problem but the broader fiscal stimulus part of the response to the financial crisis did involve giving families money and cutting VAT so they could afford more to spend more uh, in the shops. That is a the way to think about that. Those are those are more generalised support for households. So it's not saying that household is having a big problem right now, and I need, so I'm going. It's more saying we need more demand in the economy, and so we're going to have a fiscal stimulus that has broad-based macroeconomic benefits we are going to need elements of that and indeed the government has done elements of that today but the support we need to give to firms and households directly is actually slightly different it will have fiscal um, uh, stimulus effects but it is a slightly different approach which is to say lots of money to remove the core problem that is driving the demand part of this crisis uh, but also um, to make sure that people can see that they're not going to face catastrophic losses you worked for the Labour Party in, in various positions, advised various senior Labour politicians. Looking at the Labour Party now and its role as, a, as an opposition in this crisis, what advice would you give them? What, what should and shouldn't they be doing? So I think the, the role of the opposition during crises like this, and not actually just for economic crises, but is to ask the right questions. Um, and and it, it, it is also to make suggestions sometimes where they have a really do have a clear view of what's going on. But I think it is really important that the, the nature of the, suggest, the suggestions and the proposals you set, you set out in a crisis, your responsibility is that those are things that can definitely be done. Your responsibility is to say, look, this is something that is, that's not always the case in manifestos. It's things that might take five years to deliver, or maybe you're worried they could ever be delivered. But in a crisis, it is not about having kind of pie-eyed schemes that you wish could be implemented, or you kind of, you know, you would you would do if you had ten years to do. That is not what the job of the opposition is. It is to talk seriously about what can and can't be done, and help come to a, the best solution that is possible in the time that you are actually living, rather than the world you wish you inhabited. So 
that is to ask the right questions. You've been seeing that on the health response, probing about the levels of social distancing, probing about the speed of the rollout. Um, I'd say on the economic response, it's been less good. It's been less focused on things that can actually be done. Now is not the time to be calling for the five-week wait in universal credit to be scrapped because that cannot be done. The IT system cannot be changed in a crisis and it definitely shouldn't be. We need to find ways around that to get support we need to families. And that is what an opposition should be doing. What about in terms of uh, maybe doing alternative press conferences? I mean, would, would that be too political? Would that be irresponsible? Or do you think at a time like this, the country thinks, well, I'd like to hear from the leader of the opposition in some sort of official capacity? Um, I'm sure um, people want to hear from uh, politicians, but mainly what they want is us to sort out this problem. What they want to see is a government and a political establishment saying, we have you know, we have got it. We know what is going on, and we know it's bad for you, and we've got a plan to deal with it. And like, who does what press conference? You know, I've mild preferences either way, but that isn't what they're really asking. What they're asking is, please, can you sort this out? And in your experience as chief executive of the Resolution Foundation, at a time like this, do you feel that the government are open to the suggestions that you're making? I'm sure they are. And you're having those conversations with them. Uh, we and lots of other people are talking to people uh, in government. Yes, and government is looking for the answers to what are, you know, to be fair to them, very difficult and very swiftly emerging problems. And that is why we're setting out concrete, doable steps that are not, you know, we're not saying to them, oh, it would be nice if you could do something you can't do. We're saying this can be done and it should be done. Um, So just to try and end on a positive note, and this is obviously really hard just because everyone's going through this crisis in a different way. I mean, what, 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 are there any strands of hope you can find amongst all this? I mean, you know, it is good to look out for strands of hope. You can see people doing amazing things, both in our health service. But, you know, I was cycling back uh, at about 11 o'clock last night from doing a, an interview past a local primary school, 11 o'clock at night. Who was going in? The head teacher going in because her school was closing and she was going to prep for what that meant for her staff and her kids. So there are people up and down this country doing the right thing. You even see that in people doing food deliveries. You see it on my own street many more people looking after each other than would in normal circumstances. So there are lots of good things happening around this country, um, but these are tough times. And the best thing we can do is to swiftly do what we need to do to shelter firms and families from the worst of what's to come. Torsten, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Well, there you go, Torsten Bell. It is reassuring that people like Torsten were around at the time of the crash, that they're still around, that they're involved in politics and policy and are on hand to advise governments because these people are thinking about this stuff all the time. So it's not as if though the crisis has just forced them to spring into action. This is their full-time job. They dedicate their substantial brains to thinking about how the government can firstly make society a better place, but in a, in a position of crisis what exactly needs doing. And I just thought his thinking was so clear. And that document is absolutely well worth a read. It's not too long. There's some great detail in there. You learn a lot about the economy as well as what needs to be done in this crisis. Um, Obviously, the effect of of this crisis of of social distancing and not going to bars and theatres is, as you know, I've had to reschedule some of my tour dates. I'm very lucky that the team at Avalon are absolutely superb and have already, even just in the last few days, managed to rearrange so many of those dates. So the gigs I was doing in March and April, a lot of them have now been rescheduled for later in the year. If you've got a ticket for those dates, it's still valid for the new date. If you haven't got a ticket yet, 
well, help a comedian out. Uh, on the 21st of June, I'll be at the Cambridge Junction. I mean, it's worth saying, the show will hugely change as a result of all this, but um, uh, that's no bad thing. I was always updating it anyway. Uh, the 21st of June is the new date for the Cambridge Junction. I'll now be at Corby on the 2nd of October, in Brighton on the 4th of October, in Chorley on the 9th of October, in Leeds on the 18th of October, in Newcastle at the Stand on the 25th of October, at the Camberley Theatre on the 3rd of November, at the Annick Playhouse on the 13th of November, at the York Crescent on the 15th of November, at the Cardiff Sherman Theatre on the 19th of November, at the Glasgow Stand. Oh, I've done that awful thing where I've written the same date down twice. On the 29th of November, on the uh, Southend Dixon Studio on the 3rd of December, and at the Sheffield Leadmill on the 6th of December. Lots more dates to be rearranged as well. I'm hoping that the dates in May and uh, hopefully June will will definitely, um, May will go ahead as planned. If not, they will be arranged for later in the year. Do check with the venues though, um, because they often know before I do. Uh, but you can get uh, all tickets for all those dates at mattford.com slash live. Um, and throughout this period, I'm just going to interview as many people as I can. I don't know how regularly these podcasts will be. Um, obviously, I'm keen to do them quite regularly just to keep myself sane. But obviously, I realised that there's quite an important function here where I can interview these interesting people at a time when these interviews are really needed. So uh, thank you for all your lovely comments. Email me, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com and um, let us know if you're in self-isolation, how's it going and just how you're dealing with this with this new period wherever around the world um, you are. I'll see you soon. Thanks for downloading and this is the time to finally get around to it and leave a, a glowing iTunes review. I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.